like for you to turn to the sixth chapter of Romans. I want to read verses 1 through 13 to continue in our, with our emphasis and theme on the abundant life, the victorious Christian life. The sixth chapter of Romans, verses 1 through 13. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore we have been buried with Christ through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. Even so, consider, if you have a King James, it's likewise reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now there are a lot of people who try to live the Christian life like the man who came home one afternoon from work to find that he had left the faucet on in the bathroom and his house was flooded with water. So the first thing he does is grab a, a mop and start mopping. I mean, he's getting after it fast and furiously. And all the while, he leaves the faucet running, and he just mops as hard as he can. Now, he's no Aggie, and he understands that, that he's getting nowhere, so he, he gets him a bigger mop. He said, I've got to have a bigger mop to do this job. And he, he goes down to the supermarket and finds one of these big commercial mops, and he brings it home. It's the biggest mop he can buy. And he starts mopping with this big mop and he just mops for hours and does a good job but the faucet's still running and the house is still flooded. And so he thinks to himself, I probably need to be better prepared, better equipped as a mopper. So he, he, he decides to take a study course on how to be a better mopper so he can be equipped and trained for mopping. And so he enrolls in this study course for better moppers 
and he becomes the best equipped and trained mopper on his block, and he's just so skilled at it, and still the faucet's running, and the house is still flooded. After a few days, he decides that he'll just uh, hire a full-time professional mopper. Just get a full-time mopper. And so he looks in the one ads and finds an advertisement for a full-time professional mopper. And he secures him, puts him to work for a week. That guy is the best mopper he's ever seen. And if you measured success by the number of gallons that man mopped up, he would be successful. He's just the greatest full-time mopper you can get. But the house is still flooded for the faucet still running. So after a day or two, he decides he's going to rededicate himself to better mopping. He's going to make a promise to God that he's going to do a better job at mopping and he's never going to leave the faucet on again. And then finally in his frustration, he just decides that God never intended for him to live in a dry house in the first place. And so he gets him some galoshers and a waterbed and decides he'd make the best of it. Now isn't that ridiculous? First thing that man needed to do was to turn off the faucet. Instead of being so frustrated to believe that he was never meant to live in a dry house, the first thing he needed to do is turn off the faucet. Now I want to make the analogy. Watch this. The sins, the water on the floor is the sins we commit in our life. And that faucet with the running water, the source of the, of the water, the source of our sins is the self-life, the flesh, the old self. Now, I want you to know that the self-life, the flesh, can commit more sin than you can mop up in a lifetime. Now, if God made adequate provision, and we established that last Sunday, that God made adequate provision for all my sin, how does He go about delivering us from the self-life? How does He go about delivering us, turning off the faucet, so to speak, and delivering us from the self-life, from the flesh? Well, from the very beginning, God has had only one way to deal with sin, and that's by death. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, you'll find that after Adam and Eve sinned, they sought a provision to cover their sins, and so they hid themselves with leaves. It was an inadequate provision, and so God made His own provision. He provided skins for the covering of their sin. And what is God saying in that? He's saying that an innocent animal had to be sacrificed in order for man to have a covering for his sins. And out in the wilderness, as God's people wandered. He dealt with their sins by death. The fiery serpent is an example. And Moses even had to die before the children of Israel could go into the land of Canaan. And God is saying this, that in order to enter into the fullness of blessing, death must precede that fullness of blessing. And when they got into Canaan, and Ai came, the city of Ai, there was defeat, there was no victory. And how did God deal with the lack of victory in their life? By death. And He caused the death of Achan and his family to deal with that problem. And the ultimate sacrifice or the ultimate encounter with man's sin problem was the death of His Son, of course, at Calvary. 
He did more, as, as it were, than mop up the, the water, mop up the sin. When Jesus died on the cross, He did more than just take away our sins. For man's sin problem is not what he does, but what he is. You and I are not sinners because we sin. You and I sin because we're sinners. Now, I have sinned for sure, but that's not the big problem. The big problem is that I am sinful. So that when Jesus died on the cross, He did more than just take away my sins. When Jesus died on the cross, the self-life, I died with Him. I died with Him. And the reason why the cross saves us from our saves the sinner is because the cross slays the sinner. And I believe that the bridge between God's absolute provision and my appropriation is to understand that when Jesus died on the cross, I died with Him. And over and over again, in the sixth chapter of Romans, He establishes that profound theological principle that we died with Christ when Christ died on the cross. That's what baptism pictures. Did anybody ever tell you why you were baptized when you were baptized? It's amazing when you ask somebody why they were baptized, the answers you get. I get, well, to wash away my sins and, and because Jesus was baptized. Well, you were baptized for a totally different reason than Jesus was baptized. You, when you were baptized, you were picturing what happened to Jesus. When somebody stands in that baptistry, he is symbolizing, he is picturing that Jesus was dead and buried put in the water, and was raised from death. You're picturing what happened to Jesus. But you're not just picturing what happened to Jesus. When you're baptized, you're picturing what happened to you. You were dead, you died, and were buried, and were raised to walk in the newness of life. So that when Jesus died on the cross, I died with him. Now that brings me to the two points of this sermon. The first point is this. Our death was established at the cross and this saves me, saves us from the penalty of sin. What we have to do is establish the time of our death. Now a, preacher, uh, a man came up to his preacher one time. He said, preacher, I want you to help me to know how to die. I need to die to self. I'm so selfish, and I've read in the Bible that we need to die to self to live the, the, the risen life. I need to know how will you help me die to self. The preacher said, I can't help you die to self. You're already dead. You can't help somebody die if he's already dead. You, you've already died. We just need to establish the time of our death. Now, you've heard this before, but I just want to remind you by this illustration. I came to church this morning with David Shirley. Now, he came from Silo in his black pickup truck and got here at 7.15. And I came from Live Oak in my little yellow Oldsmobile and I got here at 7 o'clock. And I came with David Shirley. Do you believe that? Say no. No. In order to come together, we have to come together. Um, in order to come with somebody, you know, you come at the same time. Now, now watch. 
If the Bible says that I am crucified with Christ, that I died with Christ, I'm assuming that means that I died when He died at the same time. Now, when did He die? He died 2,000 years ago. You say, I don't understand that. That's right, you don't, and I don't either. We have a problem with tenses, but He doesn't. God always lives in the present tense. He was slain before the foundation of the world. Everything is in the present tense with Him. But when He said, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me, He didn't mean if I be exalted, I'll draw people to the cross. He meant if I am crucified, I'll draw all men upon the cross with me, and they will die with me. Now, if I die with Christ... My death was established with Jesus Christ when He died. That means two things. It means, first of all, that I'm free from the charges of sin. Sin has no charge against me. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Sin has no charge. There's no charge against me. Now let me illustrate it. If on my way home this morning I go by Love's store over here and I see a bunch of cars and policemen and lights are flashing and everything, and I get out and I elbow my way through the crowd and, and, and walk up to an officer and I say to him, what, what's happened? He said, well, this place has just been robbed. A guy came in here and had a gun, brandished a pistol, and he robbed this place and took the money. And I said, well, do you have any clues who did it? You know who did it? Yeah, he said, we know exactly who did it. We've analyzed the scene. We've investigated. We know exactly who did it. Well, who did it? George Washington. George Washington. You mean the George Washington cut down a cherry tree and couldn't tell a lie and wore wooden dentures and became the first president of the United States? You mean that George Washington? Yes, that's the George Washington. He committed, he, he robbed this place this morning. I said, well, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not trying to tell you how to do your job, but George Washington didn't rob this Love's store. And he said, well, how do you know he didn't? Well, because he died before the crime was committed. Now, let me show you why, one reason why I believe in once saved, always saved. Because every time the devil brings a charge against me, God says, do you have any dates on that? And the devil says, yes, this, this sin was committed June the 7th, 1983, and this sin was committed August the 14th, 1984, and this sin was committed, etc., etc. And God said, let me see that chart. Let me see that day. Oh, yeah, he said, no, he, he couldn't have committed that. Well, why couldn't he? Because he died 2,000 years ago. He died before the crime was committed. There, the charges have to be dropped. The devil has no charge against me in the court of heaven because I died before the crime was committed. Isn't that amazing? Not only does it free me from the charges of sin, it frees me from the control of sin. Now look at verses 6 and 7 again in your text. He says, "...that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is free from sin." Now, you and I know about slavery, but having read it, we don't know about it experientially, but you know that in, in, in that day, slaves were the absolute property of their master. They got up and went to bed uh, whenever the master said. They couldn't get married. The master told them if they wanted to get who, who they had to marry, if they could marry, told them when they could have children, how many children. They were the absolute property of the master. Well, let's suppose that one of these slaves dies in his sleep. The next morning, the master comes in, wakes him up, shakes to, to wake him up, shakes him. He says, get up and fix my breakfast. The slave doesn't move. 
So he just shouts a little louder and shakes him a little harder and says, you are late, my breakfast is due. Get up and fix my breakfast. But the slave doesn't move because the slave is dead. So the master gets his club and starts beating on him. It doesn't do any good for he's dead. An amazing thing happens when we die. We're, we're removed, we're, we're transferred from one realm to another realm, a totally different realm. Now, what does Christian liberty mean? Christian liberty does not mean that I'm free to sin. That's what some folks think. All I got to do if I was a Baptist, I'd go down there, join a church, say I'm saved, I'd be free to sin from now on. It doesn't free you to sin, it frees you not to sin. I didn't have a choice before my salvation. I was a slave to sin. I was a slave to the master of sin. But having died with Christ, it frees me from the control of sin. Let me tell you something. Let me give you a little bulletin. You don't have to sin, not one time. Now, our death is established at the cross and that saves us from the penalty of sin. Now, if you put on your thinking cap, let's go to the second point. Our death with Christ is experienced by reckoning in the King James, by claiming it, and that saves us from the power of sin. Now, I know what you're thinking right now, because I'm going to have to confess to you, and I've visited with David, and we talked about this this week. Is, you know, you, this is profound truth. I mean, you, you don't get this in, you know, Captain Marvel. This... this and, and I'm going to tell you that this sermon is the hardest sermon I will ever preach because the truth that I'm trying to get from me to you is so profound and deep, it's hard to explain and hard to understand. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, you say that I am free from sin? I'm not free from sin because I, I, I do those things that I don't want to do. I try hard, but I still sin. You're thinking, well, he says that the old self has died, but that old self is very much alive in me. I, I know what you're thinking. And you hang right in here with me. In the first 10 verses of chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says, you died with Christ. He says it over and over. That is inspired truth. And he comes to verse 11 and he says, Even so, consider yourself. It's likewise reckon. And that's the bridge between the theology to the practicality. It is reckoning it. It is considering it so. You ever, somebody, you ever had somebody say to you, Consider it done? I get in a staff meeting, I say to my guys, we need to do this, would you do this? That, those guys will say, consider it done. You know what I do? I forget about it. I consider it done. I reckon it done. I count on it being done. That word consider, that word reckon there in the Greek is a, is a bookkeeping term. It means to keep an account. It means to, it means to account it so, claim it so. Now, what you and I think faith is, we think faith is believe, making yourself believe something. It isn't so. That's exactly the, what we think faith is. Make believe. If I can make myself believe something it isn't so, that's faith. I know God doesn't heal, so I'll, I'll just make myself believe it and maybe it'll happen. That's what we call faith. Now, I'm not talking about positive thinking. Now, that's, there's a difference. You can turn on your television and get the Crystal Cathedral... And you've got an electronic preacher who has built an empire on positive thinking. 
You, be, you, you think it long enough, you believe it hard enough, and maybe it will happen. That's not faith. Faith is believing it because it has happened. And reckoning or considering is to count on this because it is a fact. Now, how were you saved? You say, well, I was saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus. How do you know He died? Were you there? How do you know He was raised from the dead? you know anybody that was there, an eyewitness of that? you know anybody who saw Him come out of the grave? Do you know any, have you talked to anybody who saw Him die? How do you know He died and was raised? You, you, you say, I'm saved by that. How do you know that happened? Well, you say, because the Bible says it so. That's right. This book says it so, and you claim that, you consider it to be a fact, and you act upon the fact that you know has happened. Now let me tell you something. Watch this. The same Bible that tells me that Jesus died and rose again tells me that I died and rose again. Isn't that amazing? The same Bible that tells you and you're counting on for your salvation that Jesus was dead and buried and raised is the same Bible that says you died and were raised. Now, how do you consider that? How do you reckon that as a fact? How do you act upon that as a truth? There are four things. I have only time to brush them. They're too positive, too negative. I'll just mention them. It means, first of all, to reckon means, to consider it, to claim it means that I must choose against myself. Jesus said, if anyone comes after me, let him what? Let him deny himself. I like the J.B. Phillips translation, I like the Williams translation of that it says, let him say no to self. Now claiming what God has done in absolute provision begins with choosing against yourself. Now let me give you an illustration of that. You go down university and you hit Washington out here, what do you hit? You hit a four-way stop sign. I have yet to come to that four-way stop sign, but what, there hadn't been a car on all four corners. I hate those things because you never know whose time it is. Now, I have been sitting there all, you know, it seems like all day, and it's bound to be my time. And I've started out so carefully, and some jerk will, will get ahead of me and you don't know, get in my place. You know what my what does my self say? Blow your horn. You know, and so when I do that, the self says, blow it again, louder and longer. That's what the self says. Now, to choose against the self is to daily say no to self. Now, they're having a big party. Young people, they're having a big party. After all, everybody's gonna be there. And you're only young once. And everybody's going to have a good time. They're going to have plenty to do and drink. Now the self says, go and have a good time. You're only going to be young once. To deny yourself is to say no to self. Here's a wife who prepares a wonderful meal. Her husband's always home at 5.30. 5.30 comes. She has the meal prepared. She's got her perfume on. Candlelight, everything is just great. He doesn't show up. Six o'clock, not there. Seven, not there. Eight, not there. No, it doesn't even bother to call. You know what her self says when he walks through the door? Tell him off. 
Say no to self. Now watch. In order to begin to, to reckon on what God has done, there must be the choosing against self. Secondly, we must consent to our death. We must consent to it. Now the question is, do you really want to be dead? That's the question. We got a lot of postponed funerals. Do you really consent to your death? Now, if you'll look back to what we did last week where it says in order to, 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 to maintain the victorious life, you have to mind the things of the Spirit and mortify the deeds of the flesh, mortify the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. Karl Barth says abundance arises out of mortification. It's true. You consent to the mortification, the death of the deeds of the flesh. Now, who is the executioner of the deeds? The Spirit of God. Now, watch. You're not the executioner. If somebody commits a crime, the sentence is passed of death, the judge doesn't pull the, the, the handle, the switch. The lawyer doesn't pull the switch. The one who brought the charges against him doesn't bring the, pull the switch. The executioner pulls the switch. Now Paul says that the Holy Spirit is the divine executioner. And if you will consent, if you will yield yourself to the Holy Spirit's control, He'll pronounce, He'll carry out the execution of the deeds of the flesh. He'll do it. You've got to consent to it. Then there are two positive. First is that I see my body is nothing more than a channel. My life is nothing more than a channel through which God works. Now our concept of the Christian life is that I've got to do what God says and I've got to get after it, you know, I've got to do it. But Paul sees the secret of the Christian life as this, that he sees his life, his life is just a channel through which God operates and works. And there's a big difference. I see my body, my life, only as a channel through which God works. Paul said, I am crucified to the world and the world is crucified to me. You know what he meant by that? He meant as far as I am concerned, the world is dead. And as far as the world is concerned, I am dead. Gypsy Smith, the great evangelist, saved in William Booth's meeting, was taken to New York City to see the nightlights one, night, one time, the nightlife. When he got back to his hotel, you know what he said? He got out on his knees and he said, God, I just thank you that I didn't see a single thing tonight that I wanted. When a person consents to his death and he chooses against himself, you know the result of that is? That he comes to a place in his life where he wants nothing more and nothing less than Jesus Christ will. There's a second thing and I'm through. It means that I begin to count on the life of Christ as my life. Now if you have a little child what that little child is doing is counting on you for her life, for his life. They can't make it without you. They can't survive. And so they look to you for every provision, for love and acceptance. They look to you. They just count on your life as their life. Now, the abundant, victorious Christian life is a man counting on the life of Christ as his life. Now, J.B. Phillips translates that familiar passage of Scripture, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He translates that like this. I am ready for anything 
through the strength of the person who indwells me. I love it. I'm ready for anything through the strength of the person who indwells me. I'm counting on Christ's life for my life. Now I'm told that there is right now being exerted upon each one of us 14.7 pounds of pressure per square inch. Now some of us, some of us have a lot more pressure being exerted because there are a lot more square inches. I'll have to, have to confess that. And, and so on, on every person, there, uh, there is 14.7 pounds of pressure being exerted. Now why aren't you crushed? Tons of pressure being exerted on everybody here. Why aren't you crushed? Because for every pound of pressure that is being exerted on you from the outside, there is an equal pressure from within pushing out that neutralizes it. For every pressure that is upon your life, for every problem and demand that is upon your life, there is one inside indwelling you if you're a believer. There is one who indwells you who not only neutralizes the pressure, but abundantly triumphs over it. I'm depending on the life of Christ as my life. Now, a dead man doesn't have any problems, so I don't have any problems. I'm coming down to something just a second. Now I'm through. If a man is dead, he has no problems. If there's somebody alive in his body, that's the boy, that's the man that has the problem. So every demand that's made upon my life is just a demand made on the Christ who indwells me. If I've died with him, I'm told, I was told that when you play tennis, if you, you know, you learn all these techniques. Coach Dyer, uh, a few years ago, he said, I'm going to make a tennis player out of you. You need a diversion. So he said, we're going to meet on Wednesday mornings, 6 o'clock, out at the tennis courts. I'm going to make a tennis player out of you. So we went out and we worked out. Poor fellow, he said after a while, no, you're not. I can tell you're not going to be a tennis. No, he didn't. He, he kept encouraging me to stay in there. But I, I, I just, I, you know, didn't have the love for the game or something. But I learned how to play tennis like you'd swat a fly. I mean, like, you know, the ball comes over and you just swat at it like that. That's the way you do it. Guy told me one time, he said, you look like you're swatting flies. And, and, and so when he started telling me how you hold your hand and how you got to keep your wrists smooth and stiff and, and you come through there and you twist your racket on your backhand, these, are, these lessons are free. You come, you, he told me, how to, he told me how, to, how to get your feet. You know? And so we started out and he, he, he's back over across the net and he was serving them up to me and every time that ball had come toward me, I was thinking, move your feet, get your feet, get, twist that racket. And, and it was just all, you know, thinking all that. Now, when you, when you come to the decision that you want to live the abundant life and, and, you, and you make that decision, you probably at first, at first, you're probably thinking, I've got to reckon here, I've got to do this. It seems awkward and, 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 and binding. It seems like an enslavery. But you know what? As you do that, it becomes second nature to allow Jesus Christ to live His life out in you. And it becomes second nature to die to self, to say no to self, to choose against the self, to consent to your death. And as you, 
and by second nature make those those decisions. You, you move along that way. You know what happens. You get your serve down and you get your backhand and you get your forehand and you get your victory. Now there are two kinds of decisions that have to be made. The first decision is I'm going to count on the death of Jesus for my salvation. Have you ever done that? The only provision that God has made for your sin is death. Not your works, not your baptism, not your church membership, but death. Have you counted on His death for your salvation? Have you trusted in His vicarious, substitutionary death for your salvation? If you haven't, you've never been saved. You want to do that today? The second decision has to be made is this. Am I, am I ready to reckon, to claim, to appropriate what Christ has done for me and stop the struggling and stop the laboring and just begin the work of surrendering my life to the control of the Holy Spirit. Would you like to do that? Some have, some haven't, some won't, some will. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this truth that you've made known to us. And I pray this morning for that person here who has never reckoned upon, trusted in, and claimed the death of Jesus for his salvation. And for those of us who have lived out the Christian life trying to mop up the sin and never really dealing with the source, to be willing to come to a place to, to say, I want to claim for myself the power and the efficacy, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, my Savior. I pray, Lord, that there'll be some of us who do that publicly today and thus gain victory in Christ because I pray in His name for His sake. Now we're going to sing together. We'll ask you to come while we stand to sing.